Okay, well, it's good to be with you guys uh, again this week, and uh, as much as I would like to spend time uh, just kind of easing into it, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to actually jump into this morning. We are uh, looking at uh, parts of Acts chapter 13 and 14 uh, together this morning, and just to kind of recap and bring up to speed on where we're at, you might remember uh, if uh, last week that we looked at uh, Paul's message in the, in the synagogue there in uh, Pisidian Antioch. And we talked about that. We talked about uh, this new idea that he was bringing and presenting uh, to uh, the Jews and the God-fearers uh, there in Antioch that uh, God had done something new in Jesus Christ. Tell me if you haven't heard that before in Acts, right? Uh, that God was up to something new because what Jesus had done. And, this, and it was not just simply about forgiveness. It was not just about uh, having uh, this legal status with God but it was actually about something more. It was about the freedom uh, that people could have. And so um, what we're going to be looking at today is actually the reaction to that message. Uh, Paul and Barnabas end up uh, leaving Antioch. There's a reaction in Antioch. They leave Antioch. They have to go to Iconium. Uh, then they go to Lystra. Then they go to Derby. And uh, there's all this stuff. And it would be easy to see all of this as separate instances on one trip. And yet, uh, really, when you look at the whole thing together, what you realize is, is this is one big, long reaction to the message of the gospel being spread for the first time in this area of the world. And so we kind of want to take it that way. And so uh, that's the reason why Ed didn't read for us, because we're covering a lot of ground, and we're going to kind of highlight a few things and, and talk about that stuff. And so uh, we will uh, actually, we fixed my computer this week, and so we will have that stuff on the screen for you. You'll actually be able to read it uh, with me this week. So let's actually start uh, there at the very first reaction. Uh, Paul has just gotten done preaching uh, his message there in the synagogue. And so in Acts chapter 13 verse 42. I want to read that in the verse after. It says there that uh, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. As we move along in uh, this chapter and a half, uh, looking at uh, these uh, reactions over the, the course of these few towns, the wrapping up of uh, Paul and Barn Barnabas's first missionary uh, trip, uh, we're going to see two conversions uh, taking place. Uh, two conversions, and, and actually, uh, while they may look the same, uh, they may get muddled together uh, as we kind of flesh it out and move throughout uh, the entirety of this passage, uh, we're going to see that they actually end up being competing conversions. Uh, the first of those is here, though, in verse 42 and 43, where the people have heard the gospel message for the first time, and they're hungry for it, they're asking questions, and what's more is they want to know more about it. And so we see that the first conversion that is taking place is a conversion to faith being put in the gospel. And let me just explain that. It might be kind of weird. You might think, well, wait a second. Is that really the conversion uh, that is going on here? Because I always thought it was about faith in Jesus. Well, the gospel is... Uh, the message of Jesus Christ. It is the good news that in Christ God has come. He has given himself for us. That in him we can have forgiveness of sins. But also through his resurrection we can have new life. And so it is a call to believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And not just to believe in that but to actually live through that. 
That's what the Jews here and the God-fearers at the synagogue are responding to. And it's a message that they have not heard before. And they are hungry for it. And they didn't even know before this how hungry they were for this message. And so they want to know more about it. They want to hear even more, too, about how Paul has warned them. He warns them at the last uh, part, a little bit of that uh, sermon that we didn't even get to last week. He says, some people are going to miss this. This is a hard message for people to hear, and especially those of you that I'm talking to today. He says, make sure you don't miss this, because this thing can be hard to find. It's easy to miss. It is a change from what you're used to. These are exactly the same words. This is the same idea that Jesus had when talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, where he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The call of the gospel is something bigger than just belief in a new idea. Changing your philosophy or your ideology of life. It, it, it is a call to live, not through your own power, but God's power. To understand that what you absolutely need most in your life is not something that you can accomplish or come to or build on your own, but it is only by the power and the grace of God that can do that for you. Again, remember, the gospel call is not a call just simply to forgiveness, but it is a call to freedom and to new life. And there's not a lot of ways to get to this. In fact, there's only one way. It's actually, we can understand much of what is going on in our world and how people act and behave and the things they're running after. If we just understand that what they're trying to get at is this freedom that they can't find apart from Jesus. When you understand that, when you understand that this is what is instinctively inside of us to want and to desire because it's God's design for us. And so we'll try to find it in every possible way that we can apart from him, usually before we turn to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. It's easy to miss this because there's only one way, and it's pretty narrow. And so this first conversion that is necessary, the, the first conversion that always takes place in the life of a believer, a follower of God, someone that cares about the things of God, is this faith being placed in the gospel. See, people aren't enticed by new ways of thinking like we often think they are. If we just let them know what we're about, what we care about, the things that are really important to us, they'll see that and they'll, they'll be won over by those things. No, the world is full of, of ads and slogans and ideas of this is what's important, this is, how, this is the worth of people, this is what we stand for. People aren't won over by those things because they can get that anywhere. People aren't won over by a sense of belonging, that if we just let them belong, if we create an environment where they feel welcome and loved and everything, then, then that will win them over. People get that. We have social clubs all over the place. That's not what they need. It's not what they're looking for. They don't care that you stand for the right thing or that you have certain principles. People are burdened by this thing we call sin. They're burdened by the fact that they do not have a relationship with a God who created them, loved them, died for them, and has something more for them. It's the gospel that they want. It's the gospel that they need. And and, and even when they don't realize that they need it, and when they realize that they they don't even realize that they want it, and yet when they hear it for the first time, they respond often as these Jews did, tell us more. Will you please come back? Can we not have more of this thing? 
The gospel is what is different about the church. It, it is the one thing that distinguishes us from everything else, every other organization in the world, institution, body, group of people, anything is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's it. When we try to be about anything else, when we try to build up and say, well, these are the things that we should be putting in, in front of people. This is what will get them in. This is what will entice them. This is what will convert them. We're missing the point because the only thing that will do it, the first thing it always has to be is the gospel of Jesus because that's what people need. And so we see people, these Jews responding here in verses 42 and 43, as most people do when they hear this for the first time. And yet we see something change. As we jump down to verses 44 and 45, it says the next Sabbath, so a week has gone by. The next Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas show up again because they were invited. And it says almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Very different reaction from the week before, right? Whole city shows up. Everybody's excited to hear this thing. The Jews see it. We're told that they're jealous. And so they start to contradict Paul to, show, to run him out of town, basically, is what we're told here in a little bit. But it's not just that they're jealous. It's not that they had envy that Paul was able to do something in one week that they hadn't been able to do the entire time they were there. It's not like Paul comes in and he's this new competing preacher and they're like, you know, we would just, we want those people and, instead of Paul. It's that they, as N.T. Wright says, it's that they had a week to sit around and talk about what this message meant, what the gospel message was about, and what it meant for them as Jews. And it had some serious implications that could play out for them. They had something really riding on this, that, that if people caught on to this, if, if, if enough people came to this new idea of following Jesus, of being a Christian, and, 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 and the practices and the values and all of that that came with it, they as Jews had something real to lose in all of this. We'll talk about that more in a second. But what we see going on here is a second conversion has taken place in the life of these Jews and God-fearers. And that is, is that their faith was in their values. Let me explain what I mean by that. The, the idea of our, our faith can be in our values rather, in, rather than in the gospel. Uh, it was, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, uh, Ed, Ed preached a sermon um, where he talked about how um, he's not in his head in approval. He always likes it when you just start off, uh, Ed said this, and uh, it was good. So um, I don't get to do it very often, so when I do, it's, uh, it, it is a treat. Um, the, the, uh, a few weeks ago, he talked about how being different for the Jews was the thing that set them apart. That was their distinction. They had these different practices. And that was what was really mattered to them. And he said the reverse of that is that the gospel is the thing that's supposed to set us apart. So basically the entire like, beginning of my sermon here was Ed's sermon. And so um, I'll give him credit for that. This distinction, this distinctiveness that they had, that they could be told apart, that, 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 that they were different, that they, that they had their own customs, they had their own religion, they had their own values, was what they valued. It was the thing that was the most important for them. 
The, the, the reason that started out was this is what they felt like they were called to. God, God tells them in the Old Testament, he says, I, you are going to, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. There's not going to be any of this, like all these other gods and all this other stuff that gets in the way. What's more is I'm going to set you apart. The word we use for that is holy. He says, I'm going to make you a holy people set apart. He said there's going to be certain things that, that are, are going to be done in, in order to make that distinction apparent to people. You're going to eat different things. You're, 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 going, you're, you're going to do different things like circumcision. But, but you're not going to associate with certain types of people. The thing was, is all of this was meant to push them in a direction of being able to evangelize, being able to speak to who their God was. But they had taken it and they said, the the whole goal of all of this is for us to show our allegiance to God. It's for us to be different. And, And the thing we need to be the most worried about is getting lumped in with everybody. Being around them, being defiled by them, they would often talk about. Their testimony to who he is as God was that they were distinct. And this distinct identity had to be preserved. It was their main value. And that if that was lost, their entire religion was lost. God was somehow undone. And so you can see how it's very subtle and yet ever so prominent that their faith was not in who God is, the gospel of God, that, that, that he is God. Their faith was in their value of being different, of being separate. You might say, well, I don't really see the difference. It sounds like you're kind of splitting hairs, you know, values versus the gospel. Don't, aren't our values informed by the things that we believe in, what our life is in, something like the gospel? Don't we have certain values as Christians because of the gospel? Why is this such a bad thing? seems like you're really, Matt, like saying the same thing, and you're just trying to make up a sermon point that, like, really isn't there. Everybody has values. The gospel determines ours. And I would say, you know what? You're right. You're totally right. And I made like this really awesome, intricate diagram to show you guys how right you are. It's a line with words. And um, what you can see here is that we have gospel and values, and there is this little line that separates them, and yet it's almost indistinguishable. It's so hard to tell where our values end and the gospel begins, or vice versa. They get mixed up because they, there's this overlapping and, and, and what matters most to us informs our values and our values inform what, what matters most to us. And so the gospel and values essentially are almost two sides of the same coin, really. That we know because of scripture, because, because of who God is, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we, we, we have values like life and, and life across the board. And, and we know how important life is and how much God values it. We, we, we value the importance of the family. We value, th- we value things like equality and freedom. All of these things that we can say are Christian values. It can be hard to tell where that ends and the gospel begins because one informs the other. But there is a difference. There is a distinction. I think maybe like one of, one of the best illustrations I can come up with to try to show like what it is I'm trying to say here and point out is the idea of uh, the difference between loving your kids and valuing good grades. That you can say, well, I value good grades because I love my kids. I want my kids to do well. And I want them to be successful in life. And good grades, being a good student, getting into a good school, that is a 
best way to do that. And so I'm trying to set them up for success in their life, and it's because I value them. And you know what? Most of the time, I would say that is always the case and where it starts and how it begins. But I don't think, it's, I, don't think I have to like convince you very hard, because we see it all the time, how easy it is for that push to become about something else. We see this with grades. We probably see it even more so with sports, right? I want my kids to be in sports because of the values it teaches them, and I think that's good, and I just love my kids, and I want them to have fun. And then somewhere along the line, the parent figures out that they get something out of their kids doing well in sports, just as much as the kid, if not more. And so they start to push their child, not out of love for the child, but out of what they're getting by their son or daughter being good at sports, having good grades, being successful in life. All of these different things, right? And so it's no longer about the child, how much they love the child. It's all about them as a parent and what they're getting out of it. I mean, we all know what that parent at the sporting event who's in it for themselves and not their kid looks like, right? We know the voice. We've heard the voice. And if you're sitting around and you're like, "Ah, I don't know, I I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's because it's you. We know what this looks like, to start in a good place, to, to have this kind of first conversion of, uh, based out of love, and I love my child, and so I do this for my child. I, I value these things. I want them to have these experiences, but along the way, we find out we get something out of it too, and it becomes more about that. This value of, of being distinct had served the Jews well. Uh, because uh, in Rome, they, they actually had a special status. They had been labeled as an ancient religion. And that afforded them some things that nobody else under Roman rule got. Uh, Stuff like they were allowed to continue their religion. A lot of times the Romans broke down or assimilated uh, the religions uh, of people that they uh, conquered. And and before long, uh, people lost their entire culture. Yet Rome allowed the Jews uh, to maintain their distinctness. They, They allowed them to have their temple. They allowed them to have certain uh, things that were their own, uh, and they could say uh, Rome has no uh, bearing here. They, they were allowed in Jerusalem to have their own court uh, that, that, that could dish out its own type of punishments, unheard of in, in the Roman world. They didn't have to worship the imperial cult that was so prevalent in Pisidian Antioch. And what's more, maybe even most importantly, they didn't have to serve in the army. Because if you were a Jew a devout Jew, and, and you followed their rules, and you were allowed to maintain their beliefs, one of the big things was is you, did not, you, you didn't do anything on one of the seven days of the week. You took a Sabbath. And you know what? It just doesn't make a lot of sense when you're trying to conquer the world if you have an army that won't work one out of seven days. And so Jews didn't have to serve in the army. Huge thing that they were able to get out of. Being distinct had given them certain things. They began to get something out of us. As much as the Jews, so at this point, as much as the Jews might say, well, this is about God. This is is how we show who God is, and this is how we set ourselves apart, and this is how we're holy so that the world can know him and see him. In fact, they were getting a whole lot out of this deal, this value of being different. And you know what it's like when people tell you, well, it, it, it's about this thing, and you're like, yeah, that kind of rings hollow because I, I don't think it's really about that thing. It's kind of like when universities 
tell everybody that the reason that they can't pay student athletes is because they're already getting education and that's payment enough and then you find out that they're creating fake classes so that the students can remain eligible so that they can keep playing and so you're like oh maybe it's not about the thing that you like have been saying it's about you know all the time because you're actually getting like a lot of money and prestige out of this it's kind of like that we see this taking place in these Jewish believers and leaders in Antioch Pisidian because in verse 50 we find out that the Jewish leaders team up with the Gentile leaders of the town to run Paul and Barnabas out of town. That they were actually willing to come together with the people they were trying to disassociate themselves from. So that they can maintain this value that they were getting so much from. Actually what they figured out was the message that Paul and Barnabas had. That if people were to believe in it. They would would give up some of the Jewish practices. They would give up their dietary restrictions. They would stop circumcising people because they no longer had to. And all of a sudden Rome would look at them not as Jews as a part of an ancient religion. But a part of this new cult. And Rome treated cults, especially new ones, very differently than they did the Jews. Their way of life was at stake here, and they did not want to lose that. They had placed their faith not in who God was and what God had done and was doing, but in their values because in their mind they had seen how their values had worked. I think what this means for us, if we kind of try to like take a step back for a second and, and look at it and just say, okay, so like, what does this mean for us? Because we're, we're not Jews. We, we, we don't have these sorts of things. I think what it means for us is, is that we are always at risk of being converted for a second time. Of our faith no longer being placed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but thinking that we need to put our faith in certain values, certain passions, certain viewpoints. And actually, the longer that we are in the church, the longer that we are a part of a Christian community, the more tempting this call to the second conversion, to leave our original faith in the gospel and put our faith in certain values, is going to be. The reason is, is that the longer we're in this, the more our lives are built around it. And so as we see certain values that, the, that we know that are, are, are from the gospel being threatened, we're worried about losing our way of life. We're worried about things looking differently for us on a day-by-day basis. We don't want to lose what we've worked so hard to gain, and so we will fight for that well before we will fight for the gospel. What's more is this seems like the next step for believers, We see people that give themselves passionately to certain values, to certain issues, to certain topics, to certain calls to change, and we admire them. And so we say, wow, I, I wish I had faith like that. And so we think that the thing to do is to begin putting our faith in those places and areas and values. I know that's kind of fuzzy. It'll hopefully make sense here in a little bit, in a little bit as we walk through and, and, and look at the rest of this and where a faith in the gospel and a faith in values eventually lead us to and they're very different places. As much as they might start in the same place, we end up on opposite sides. 
But what I want to do before we move on is, as we walk through each one of these, I want to share with you what I think are some warning signs that this might be, your faith might be in values rather than the gospel. And these aren't like across the board. This isn't like when this happens, this is going on, or this is the only way it can happen. But um, it it, it is something to take stock of. And and what what I want to do is share with you just some like really simple uh, phrases that we say often without even thinking about it, and yet there can be a whole lot more to them. And so when you find yourself saying this, to know, okay, well, I need to step back for a second, take stock, I need to ask the Holy Spirit to take stock of where am I at? Where is my faith right now? What am I working out of? What am I living out of? The first warning sign for us in, in this, to know where is your faith at? Is it in the gospel or is it in your values? Is just, have you heard? Usually the way this goes is, have you heard what, fill, drop a name, said about this? Have you seen it? Have you read it? The idea behind this is you need to be careful that you don't become someone else's disciple. That there isn't someone, one or two people out there. We all, we all have people that we like, that we resonate with, that we really like their take on things. And, and so we're really into knowing what they said about it. And what's more is we think other people need to hear it because that's the truth. That's the gospel. When in reality, the reason that we like them so much is the same values that we hold so dear are the ones that they defend. The ones that they, their viewpoint backs up and guards for us. And so we like their take on everything because we know it's coming from a place where their values are the same as ours. Just to give you an example really quickly, um, one of my personal ones that that I I know of and I have to be careful about is actually the guy that I just referenced um, a little bit ago, so take that for what it is, Uh, N.T. Wright. Um, N.T. Wright has um, some pretty amazing uh, views on a few things. There are a couple things in particular that uh, he has written about and and, and talked about that I resonate with, that I agree with, and... um, the thing is, is they're kind of like finer points of theology. They're not like salvation issue, big stuff. Um, and so you can have difference of opinion, and yet I like what he says. And so I know that I have this inclination that whenever I'm challenged, whenever I run up against something that's different, and I, and I don't know exactly what to think about it, to want to run and find out what does N.T. Wright think about it. And what's more is I want other people to know what N.T. Wright thinks about it. Because he has a couple values, he has a couple things that I agree with, that, it's, that I know, okay, then that's... This is what I need to think in this area about this thing because of this other thing. The thing is, I, I know that I have this inclination, so I have to keep myself guarded from just running and reading everything N.T. Wright has said about anything. And, and, and the fact is, is that I could find, I could get his opinion on any subject because the guy's written like 70 books. He has a blog. He does podcasts all over the place, interviews galore. Uh, he's written a commentary on every book of the New Testament. I mean, if I wanted to know what he thought about every subject that, under the sun, I could. And so I know I'm not called to be a disciple of N.T. Wright. I'm called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what I need to know, first and foremost, is what does the gospel say about it? What is my faith in? If you have that one or two people that you're always just fixated on, what are they saying about it? What have they said? And have you heard? And have you read it? And have you seen it? That needs to give you pause in your life and say, maybe 
my faith is in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe I have converted to a faith in certain values, and that's why I'm so fixated on these few individuals. I've become their disciple rather than his disciple. But maybe you're still like, well, why is this such a bad thing? I mean, we all have people that we like and we resonate with and, and, and we like their take on things. And yeah, that's right. We should be reading. We should be listening. We, we should be expanding our mind. And that's the point, though. You should be expanding your mind and coming into contact with what many other people are saying, differing viewpoints, and then going back to Scripture, to Jesus. Is this really such a bad thing, though, if... Because, I mean, if, if I'm about these values, I'm getting Jesus because they're right there together. And who knows where one ends and the other begins. And, and you know what? It wouldn't be a bad thing if you could stay here, but life moves on. Life goes beyond these conversions. And, and when it does, when you move down that line uh, of your life, you come into contact with people that have different ideologies. They have different values. And that's really when we begin to see the difference. We, we see this the first time that we see Paul and Barnabas uh, moving on from uh, Pisidian Antioch. They're there in chapter 14. They, they go into Iconium. They share. And what we find out is people have, divi- there's a divided reaction to them. And things are done to them. Things are said. People chase them out of town. They move on to Lystra. They share again. Things are done to them. He's actually stoned, right? But yet the thing that keeps happening is they keep sharing over and over and over again. They've been, they have been hurt time and again by people. And we see this through Paul's life, that for all of the things that have happened to him, all the times he's been betrayed, all the shipwrecks he's had to endure, all of that stuff, no matter how much he has been hurt, he is fixated on sharing the gospel with people, even though that's the reason why he's been hurt. And so we see that the first step is, is that the gospel fosters love in our hearts, a love for people and a love for God's word that we can't stop but share it no matter what we run into. And no matter how difficult our life might be, the, the, the hardships that we have as a result of it, it is something that flows out of us. And that as we are connected to Jesus and as we're connected to his people, we are enabled to love even after we are hurt. Even in the midst of being hurt, we can respond in love. That is the first thing that the gospel does in us. It increases the size of our heart, even the orientation. No longer are we turned in on ourselves, but we're pushed outwards. And and so we can't help but share love with other people. But we see with the Jews there in Pisidian Antioch that the reaction is very different. I already talked about Verse 50, let's just go ahead and read it together. It says, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And so as much as the gospel forms and builds up and establishes love in our life so that we can operate through that and respond to people in that way, we find that what values actually do is quite the opposite and that it instills and flames fear. See, the thing about values is, is, is they are hard to instill. They are hard to teach. They're even harder to achieve. And not just like, I mean, if you've ever tried to raise kids, you know how hard it is to instill a value and achieve it with your kids. Better yet, try like a society, right? Values have to be worked for. They have to be formulated. They have to be fought for. And once they're gained, they have to be maintained. 
The second we let up, the second we give a little bit, that's when everything comes apart, right? We know that feeling. We all sense that in our lives in one way or another at certain times with certain values that we hold very dear. And so because they have to be maintained, because they have to be guarded with, anyone that sees it differently is not to be trusted. That we begin looking at people suspiciously. Why? Because we fear they may take us somewhere opposite of our values. And this is human nature. I'm uh, not being originally from Kentucky, or from Oregon, I'm from Kentucky, um, I, uh, I, I'm always kind of amazed at the things that I've done and seen, and I talk to people about it in the state of Oregon, that they're like, yeah, I've lived here my whole life, I've never done that. Um, like, for instance, I've, I've been to Crater Lake three times, and I've talked to a lot of people, they're like, yeah, I've never been to Crater Lake. And, um, and I'm like, well, you know, um, not only have I been to Crater Lake, but I've done Crater Lake as a day trip. And uh, not just once, but twice. That's right, I'm that kind of crazy. And uh, it is... One of the coolest things I've ever seen. But another one of those things is a few years ago, I went to uh, Fort Clatsop, uh, which, you know, you talk to people and they're like, yeah, I've never been there. Uh, which is uh, the, the place where uh, Lewis and Clark uh, spent uh, the winter uh, on their expedition out here. And so uh, one of the amazing things about that was, is so you kind of hear the name Fort Clatsop and you don't really think much about it, but you pull up and it's a fort. Um, even though these guys were out here supposedly to like explore and just find out what was out here, when they came time to settle down for the winter, um, instead of just building a few houses and being like, well, here we are, you know, maybe we'll mingle with the locals and get to know them and, you know, help explore. What they did was, is they built two buildings side by side and they put, the outside walls were higher and everything was kind of sloping down so that it created walls. And then in between the two buildings on both ends, they built walls. Because this is what we do. When we find ourselves in new places, when we find ourselves in unexplored territory, normally the first thing we will build, even before we build a shelter for ourselves, is walls. Why? Because the unknown is scary. We have a natural fear of it. We're suspicious of what is out there. Because we instinctively know they won't have the same values as us. Because we haven't had time to implant them in them. When our faith is in our values, the thing we're really good at, that we become really good at, is building walls in our life. Of keeping ourselves isolated from certain groups of people, certain individuals, certain ideas or philosophies. Because we're afraid that if those are given any ground whatsoever in our life, in our community, then the thing that we value most will be lost. But this is not what Jesus is about. And Paul says that. He writes a letter to Timothy at the end of his life, and he's trying to encourage Timothy. As Paul feels like he's come to the end of his life, he's getting ready to die, he, he wants to encourage Timothy, and he's, he tells Timothy, look, you're going to go through a lot of stuff. You're going to have trials. But the first encouragement he gives them is this. He says, I re- I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Obviously, a faith in the gospel. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear 
forces us, implores us to hang on to what we have. To build up walls and just hold on and withstand. Love pushes us out to those that need to hear the message of the gospel. So here's the second warning sign. I just don't understand how. Have you ever said that? I know I have. I just don't understand how they could think that. I don't understand how they could live that way or they could be about those things. I I just don't get that viewpoint. If you ever find yourself saying those words, hold on for a second, take stock, because the next thing you do is critical. If you have a faith that is based in the gospel, the love that is building in your heart and in your soul and in your life will implore you to go to those people and to understand them because that's what love does. If your faith is in the values that you have and you're just trying to maintain and hang on to those, the fear in your life will drive you to isolate. Not seek to understand, just seek to block out. It's okay to admit, I don't understand how people could feel that way. I don't understand how millennials could be like that. Why can't they just commit to what they schedule and not flake out at the last second? Believe me, I know. But once you say that, the next thing you do is so important. Will you go to them and love them and seek them out? That's what God did, right? That's what he did in Jesus. He loved us enough to send his only son. The last thing that we see here is is that Paul and Barnabas are are run from town to town. And and then in this town, Lystra, uh, we actually see the Jews from Antioch chase him down so that they can stone him. And having stoned him, they they stone him to such a degree that they think he's dead. And so they throw him out of the city and they leave him for dead. And what we see is that out of their fear of what could be lost, of what might change, of how the life that they knew might be going away, the Jews through fear resort to violence. And this isn't just violence of anybody that threatens their way of life. It was a violence towards one of their own. Paul was a Jew, and what's more is he had kept the law better than any of them had. Ultimately, values have a way of distorting our view of losing sight of the bigger picture, of losing sight of the thing that we say is actually most important. They would have said one of the things they value more than anything is life, and especially the life of those who are a part of the chosen people of God. And yet here in this place, they are violating everything that they say that they value and that they stand for because of the fear of what they might lose. And look, as this relates to us today and this idea of violence, we're like, well, you know, I, I don't think that we struggle with violence. I mean, it's been a while since I've been to a stoning, so I think we're past that stuff, right? But violence in our day takes a different shape, doesn't it? It, it, it looks like things like gossip, grumbling, lying, slander, name-calling. Because the moment we label someone in a derogatory fashion, we begin to stop seeing them as a person who is loved by God and created his image and see them as a problem that has to be overcome and dealt with. Maybe the biggest tell here is that it's just a situation, it's a viewpoint, it's a certain individual that you just can't let it go. You can't stop talking about it. You can't stop thinking about it. 
And the thing is, is that we can't even see how much we are missing what truly matters. I'm reading a book right now uh, by an evangelical pastor, and um, I'm only like a third of the way through the book. But uh, the title is Costly Grace, and, and he's talking about, it's, it's basically, it's an autobiography. And, and um, recently I was reading about where he was uh, talking about how he got caught up in uh, the anti-abortion movement in uh, the 80s. And some of the things that he did, it, he was really reluctant, really skeptical of it, and yet um, he, uh, he, got, he got sucked in, his, his brother got into it, and then, and then he got into it. And he talks about some of the things he ended up doing. And it's stuff that, like, you read it, and I, I think if it, was, if it was from the other viewpoint, you'd say, man, that is, like, so messed up. Things like uh, he, he went to an um, uh, abortion clinic in um, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, took uh, the bodies of four uh, killed babies, um, stuffed them in a, uh, his coat jacket, smuggled them on a plane across state lines, which is a felony, uh, to New York so that he could use them in anti-abortion demonstrations so that he could put them in the faces of mothers who are about to go in for an abortion and um, try to convince them uh, to not go through with it. Pretty extreme stuff. Uh, as he was talking about that, uh, he said uh, here in his book, he said, the price was high. Uh, we were deep in legal trouble, spending enormous sums we didn't have. The emotional toll on our families was also enormous, and there were days I wondered if it was all worth it. But still, we soldiered on. We were getting attention for a noble cause. I could announce a news conference, often with only hours' notice, and see 12 trucks with satellite dishes roll into the church parking lot. But I was blind to the human implications. I ignored the anguish expressions on women's faces as they tried to ensure, enter the clinic uh, for this procedure and had to face our censor. I ignored how much I was losing my perspective on what was truly important. It struck me as I was reading that because I instantly thought of Joanne Egeman uh, and her work with Obria. And I think one of the things that has always stuck out to me about Joanne is Joanne knows that the lives that are at stake in anything like, in a situation like this, it's more than just one, that there are multiple lives. And her heart is for all of those lives that this touches. Of them all knowing life in Jesus and knowing his freedom and how her faith in the gospel keeps her grounded in being able to see the bigger picture and not seeing these mothers or pro-choice advocates as the problem to be dealt with and violently assaulted, but to be loved. And so warning sign number three is, if we ever find ourselves saying, I just can't believe it. That when we see or find out that someone thinks a certain way, our perception of them shifts. That we, how, how you see them changes when you learn about their view on that subject, or how they voted, or their pattern, or lifestyle. You see them now this way, and you can't get over it. I just can't believe they would think that. I just can't believe they would vote that way. I just can't believe they would like that person. But this is a hard thing for us to know. Like, have I made that shift? Am I seeing this thing? And so the easier way to know is how you relate to them. That you know that you feel this way. You know that your faith is in your values, and that's what you care about most because your conversations with them always end in the same place. A really good tell is if on the way to family holidays and dinners, your spouse has to tell you what topics of discussion are off the table. 
Because your faith is in that value and it must be defended, it must be argued, they must be converted, not to Jesus Christ, but to that value, that way of thinking and seeing it. You see their values as a threat to what is most important to you, and that is your values. The great thing is, is there is a flip side to all of this, and there is hope for us. Because I think the second conversion is something we all struggle with at one point or another in our life, in our faith, in our walk with Jesus. That we find that our faith has been misplaced in the values that we have rather than the gospel. And so it's why Acts chapter 14 verses 20 and 22 are so good. Because even after Paul is stoned in Lystra and left for dead, we're told that when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and then to Antioch. He goes back to these places, to these people that have stoned him and beat him and run him out of town and said things about him. You know the crazy thing about this is, is when they're in Derby, he could have just kept going straight, gone down the mountain, and ended up in Tarsus, his hometown. He could have gone somewhere where he was loved, accepted, cared for, valued. And yet he turns around and out of the love that is in his life because of Jesus Christ, he goes back to the very people that have tried to kill him. He gave up so much, his health, his comfort, his idea of what he would be, his way of life. And he did it time and again, all for the gospel and so that people might hear it. See, in the same way that our values will instill fear in us, that will lead us to violently lash out at those that we see as a threat to our way of life and how we want things to be, the gospel builds love in our hearts to such a degree that we are willing to sacrifice not just for it, but for them as well. That rather than holding on to and grasping at everything we can, we are willing to let it go because we know that there is something more important. That we are willing to shut our mouths and let our opinions not be heard so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be heard. And that we are willing to sacrifice for people that we don't know yet and people we may never meet. That we are willing to let go of our style of life so that they may know true life in Jesus Christ. And we will do that so that the gospel will continue to be shared and spread even beyond our very own limited view of what we can see and the difference it is making. There are so many things in our life that God is going to ask us to sacrifice for, and we're going to see, but I can't see the value in it. I can't see what it's doing. And he says, you're right, you'll never be able to. But if your faith is in me, if your faith is in the gospel, you're going to be willing out of the love I have shown you and given to you to sacrifice for the sake of others. When our faith gets slowly, almost without being able to tell, switched from the gospel to values in our life, we slowly, step by step, begin to lose Jesus, and values without Jesus become cold, rigid rules that eventually will destroy the very life that they were made to protect and enhance. We as people need to be humble enough to know that we are always going to be tempted to be about even good values more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we need to constantly be asking ourselves, but better yet, opening ourselves up to allow the Holy Spirit to check us. So when we hear some of these things come out of our mouth, as subtle as they might seem, not that big of a deal. Realize there's a whole lot behind it. And we need to make sure that that is the love of Jesus Christ and not something else that we think is more important and must be fought for and maintained. Because the thing is, is that values, they can't stand up for themselves. But Jesus Christ can. And through his power, we can share his love freely. Because we know it is not by our own power that this is maintained, that this is held on to, but it is by his grace and his love because his heart is for everyone to hear his gospel and come to new life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for... Thank you for the fact, Lord, that when we do get off track... You never give up on us. That your gospel is always available to us. That there's never a point where we've gone too far to where the grace of Jesus Christ cannot reach us. And that is true for every person. No matter what they believe, no matter where they may be at, the choices they've made, the gospel is always relevant. It's always available. Father, would we seek to share that message with the world? But even more than that, would we seek to grab onto it with our own lives? Would your Holy Spirit show us, Lord, is our faith in something else other than you, other than your gospel, other than the hope of Jesus? And Lord, if it is, would you give us the strength and the power to let go of that and come back to what is most important? Thank you that you never give up on us, you never leave us alone, that you are always pursuing us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.